ಅಸತೋಮಸದ್ಗಮಯ ತಮಸೋಮ್ಯೋತಿರ್ಗಮಯ ಮೃತ್ಯುರ್ಮೃತ ಗಮಯ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ಓಂ ಲೀಡರ್ಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ದಿ ಅನ್ರಿಯಲ್ ಟು ದಿ ರಿಯಲ್ ಲೀಡರ್ಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಡಾರ್ಕ್ನೆಸ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಟು ಲೈಟ್ ಲೀಡರ್ಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಡೆತ್ ಟು ಇಮಾರ್ಟ್ಯಾಲಿಟಿ ಓಂ ಪೀಸ್ 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 ಗುಡ್ ಮಾರ್ನಿಂಗ್ ನಮಸ್ತೆ Shivaratri, the annual night-long worship of Shiva, uh, it's a few days hence actually. But we are doing an early observance. And uh, I was thinking, what better way to worship Shiva than to, you know, sing the glories of, of Shiva, in praise of Shiva. And what better way to praise Shiva uh, than through the Shiva Mahimna Stotra, the probably the most beloved most well known and most magnificent uh, hymn sanskrit hymn uh, for shiva so i'm going to talk about that um it's something that's recited by millions of people by hindus uh, in india and elsewhere every day um, monks who as a rule do not frequent temples and uh, you know do ritualistic worship but they worship shiva shiva is the god of the for the for the monks and so i remember this monastery i stayed in for for a couple of nights in uh, at the foothills of the himalayas uh, kailash ashram kailash is the abode of shiva and the ashram is also called kailash ashram there uh, um, it was all about studying non dual vedanta but one thing was compulsory that you have to go in the morning to the temple and it's the temple of shiva abhinava chandreshwara so you have to go to the temple and attend the morning meditation and that culminates with a chanting of this hymn uh, the shiva mahimna stotra and so on and this is something that is chanted by people at in their homes temples the shiva temples across india and also across the world now so i'll uh, talk about this of course i cannot go through the entire uh him with so many verses a few of them the uh, initial ones um it's also storytelling because it's full of uh, the most charming s- stories how do you deal with these stories how do you you know um get maximum benefit from these stories is a puranic the legends mythology now, but the moment you use the english word mythology myth means something that's not real you know Uh, but the reli- the religion scholar reza aslan said myths are always true because they are not about historical fact they are ab- about spiritual truths so those are always true for all times for all peoples to so vivekananda in one place he talks about uh, how you how do you deal with these stories you just don't uh, scrutinize them for which one is t- true because you will find the same story with multiple versions and all of them are true because they are meant to show us something not to tell us about a particular historical event they don't look at it scrutinize it historically don't scrutinize it scientifically uh, but he gives a beautiful analogy it's like water washing over you let it wash over you listen to it you know with reverentially let it wash over you and f- let the flood waters recede it will leave behind he says it will leave behind in you a nugget of truth it leave behind some intuitive understanding which is difficult to put in language but you will get it uh, 
So that's how you deal with these stories. But just stories, very nice stories anyway. I sometimes think they would make a make a wonderful, you know, science fiction series or something like that with Hollywood special effects. They would really. <laughs> so it starts with a story, um, with a one of those mischievous, talented celestial beings called Gandharvas. The Gandharvas are the celestial, you know, the heavenly musicians, artists, dancers, poets. They are very talented people. I always say it's like. The perpetual Juliet school here, <laughs> so uh, they are so the greatest of artists. They after they die, they go to this world of the Gandharvas. Now they are often also a little mischievous. Um, they're fun-loving people, very talented, but also a little mischievous. And one of these Gandharvas, his name was Pushpadanta, the the author of this this hymn. So this Gandharva. Um, once he was merrily on his way, he was a great devotee of Shiva, the worshipper of Shiva. He was merrily on his way, and according to multiple versions, one version is he was on his way on his celestial chariot, um, uh, so this chariot which flies through the sky. Another version was he was flying through the sky, so he had superpowers like Superman or something. And then uh, he saw this amazing garden below him. And then he swooped down. This garden belonged to the king Chitraratha, who was also a devotee of Shiva. But he had this most wonderful garden. And Pushpadanta, who had superpowers of invisibility, so he becomes invisible and sweeps, uh, swoops in down on the garden. And he sees these beautiful flowers. And his first thought is, such wonderful flowers, they should be offered in the worship of Shiva. So he goes straight away and he um, picks those flowers, steals them basically. And then he flies away again. And he worships Shiva with those flowers. Now, all wonderful, devo devotional, but it's not moral. It's he's stealing things which do not belong to him. Uh, so this is something you see throughout the stories of the Gandharvas. They create trouble. Now, um, Chitraratha, the king, he saw the garden was barren. Where, where did the flowers go? And he asked the guards. The guards said, we didn't see anything. He changed the guards. And the next night before sunrise, again, Pushpadanta swooped in and he saw the flowers which were blooming and he took them away again and the guards couldn't catch him. When it happened two, three, four nights in a row, then the king thought, this is not, there's no hum mere human who's behind this. It must be a celestial being. Now, how do I trap this being? So what he did was, he took the, what is called nirmalya. Nirmalya means the, the, you know, the bale leaves and the flowers which have been offered to Shiva. And so they become sacred after the offering. So he took them and he had them scattered around the garden. Uh, just like ordinary leaves on the soil. So the next night when Pushpadanta swooped in to collect his booty of flowers, uh, he accidentally trod upon the uh, offerings, you know, which had been given to Shiva, the leaves which are on the ground. And immediately all his powers went away. He, he lost all his powers and he became uh, visible to the guards who immediately rushed in and caught hold of him. He tried to become invisible, not working. He tried to f fly away, not working. I mean, one version says the chariot was, became just an ordinary chariot. It couldn't fly anymore, couldn't become invis invisible. So he was... Uh, Again, one version of the story is at that moment he composed this hymn uh, to praise Shiva and to uh, repent for his uh, misdeeds. Another version is that he was thrown into prison um, without all his powers. He lost his glory 
and thrown into prison, there in repentance in tears, he composed this hymn to Shiva. And Shiva appears before him um, and restores all his former glory and blesses him and releases him from uh, prison. So that's the story of Pushpadanta and the composition of this beautiful hymn, Shiva Mahimna Stotra. So we are going to... Um, there is also a slight addendum to the story. After being released, when Shiva appeared before him and after being released from prison, Pushpadanta became slightly vain. He thought, look, I have composed the greatest hymn to Shiva. Um, so this is my glory. And immediately, Nandi, the bull, Shiva's bull, who's there, uh, always with Shiva, Nandi grinned at him. And on the gleaming teeth of the bull, he saw the entire hymn already written there, <laughs> long before he composed it. So that smashed his uh, ego. You know, that it's not by his own powers that he came up, uh, he was able to do this, but uh, out of the grace of Shiva himself. So that's the story. I'll chant the um, verses and talk about it a little bit. So it starts like this. Mahim na param te parama vidusho Stutir brahma dinam apita davasanna Athavacya sarva swamati parinama vadhigrinan Mamapyesha stotre haranirapavada parikara What does this mean? He starts off by saying, if praising thee, O Lord Shiva, if praising thee um, by one, someone who is ignorant of thy greatness, yeah. it's unbecoming. Um, in that case, even the praises of Brahma and all the other gods, they are inadequate because they also do not know your glory, you know, the full extent of your glory. And if it is all, all right, not blameworthy, if someone praises thee according to their, according to their powers, you know, whatever their capacity is, in that case it's all right. Then in that case, even this humble offering which I am composing, this is also without blemish. So it starts off on a very uh, humble tone that um, even the gods, they, they cannot praise you. See, when you praise somebody or something, that depends upon knowledge. One must know what one is praising. But then it becomes, that becomes a difficult um, um, condition because when it comes to God, who knows God? Uh, who knows the extent of the magnificence and the greatness of God? In that case, who is qualified to praise God? Swami Vivekananda, once he was asked, why don't you write a biography? You know Sri Ramakrishna more than, better than anybody else. Why don't you write a biography of Sri Ramakrishna? And he replied in a, in a Bengali phrase. He says, Shib ki banor gorbo. When you, um, you know, it was the, a, a, a practice to make clay images of Shiva and worship. So sometimes, if the person who's making the image is not a good craftsman, or maybe a child, so instead of looking like Shiva, it looks like a monkey. So, so the phrase goes, the Bengali saying goes that, um, you know, you start off trying to make an image of Shiva and you end up with a monkey. So <laughs> Vivekananda said that. 
uh, you know, when he was asked, why don't you write a biography of Sri Ramakrishna? He says, I'm going to you know, start off writing, you know, making an image of Shiva and end up with a monkey. That means I, I cannot. I mean, whatever, even the best effort that I put forth is nowhere close to the, what uh, Sri Ramakrishna um, was or is. Just by the way, this uh, hymn is so popular, Vivekananda quoted from this hymn in the World Parliament of Religions, the first talk he gave on 11th September 1893 in Chicago. In that first talk, there was a verse which he quoted from this hymn, which we'll come to later on. So, one must know something about God, but then it becomes uh, difficult, uh, because Brahman, the ultimate reality, the absolute existence, consciousness, bliss, uh, is beyond all attributes, nirguna, beyond all attributes. So it's never an object of knowledge. Then how, how can you uh, know Brahman? Or Brahman as God, as the creator, preserver, destroyer of this universe, is so full of infinite auspicious attributes. I'm translating from the commentator Ramanujacharya, uh, who is a great devotee of God. And in his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, the first sentence is one page where he writes about the auspicious qualities of Vishnu. So there are so many auspicious, wonderful, infinite qualities of God. Who is capable of mentioning all of that? In either case, God beyond attributes, the absolute reality, or God with attributes, it's impossible for um, anyone to you know, adequately praise God. So that's what he's saying. That avidusha, those who do not know, they will, uh, if they try to describe you asadrishi, it will not be like you, what you truly are. It will not be an adequate description. And who can know you? Who can know you, O Shiva? So there's a story, yes, another story about this. Who can know Shiva? So when the universe was created, you know the story that uh, Vishnu, the Lord of the universe, he is always a couch potato. He's lying on this, this uh, cosmic serpent. And from his navel comes the lotus which blooms and on which Brahma, the creator, is sitting. So Brahma, Vishnu, Maheshwara, the three deities. You know, Vishnu is the preserver of this universe. Brahma is the creator. And Maheshwara or Shiva, is one of his aspects, is that he dissolves or destroys the universe at the end of one cycle. So in popular iconography, in Hindu iconography, you will see Vishnu reclining. And on the from the navel of Vishnu, there's a lotus blooming. And on that, Brahma is sitting, who will proceed to create the universe. So Brahma creates the universe. And then he happens to look down and sees Vishnu and says, who are you? And Vishnu says, I'm your creator. Brahma said, I created the universe. You're my creator? What do you mean you're my creator? You're nobody. And so they start quarreling about who is greater, Vishnu or Brahma. And the gods become scared of this quarrel between Vishnu and Brahma, so they appeal to Shiva, do settle this quarrel. And then um, Shiva appears uh, before them in uh, a pillar of radiance or light or fire, which stretches, uh, which stretches from one end of the universe to the other end. So this is a very popular story. So this is this tower of light stretching from one end, um, from the top to the bottom. Don't ask me how there is a top and a bottom to the universe. There just is. You have to take it for. <laughs> Swami Vivekananda used to say this, you know. Uh, so there's this pastor in a small uh, town in uh, somewhere in, in the United States. He's giving a sermon on the creation of, of the universe. So God created the universe and he set it out on the fence to dry. 
And then somebody asked, where did the fence come from? And the pastor was furious. He said, you keep quiet. You will destroy all theology. <laughs> so let's just take it. There's a top of the universe and the bottom. And the pillar of fire extended all the way up and all the way down. And whoever sees the top and the bottom of this pillar of fire, pillar of radiance, they are greater. They are greater. It's either Vishnu or Brahma. Brahma says, okay, I accept the challenge. And he's Rajasik, you know, he's the creator of the universe, dynamic. And his mount is the swan, he, he rides on the swan. So he goes on the swan and he says, I will uh, go to the, I'll fly to the top of the universe and find, find out the upper limit of this pillar of fire. Um, Vishnu is humble. He says, all right, I will dive down and go to the bottom of, uh, get to the bottom of this. What is this pillar of fire and what is its extent? So he takes the form of the Varaha, the boar. The cosmic board, the avatars are there. So, so he dives, he goes shooting downwards and Brahma flies upwards, flapping up and on his swan. He travels and travels and travels and years and years pass. And neither comes to the end of this endless pillar of, uh, of fire. Now Brahma is tired and his swan can't, probably can't take it anymore. And so <laughs> Brahma thinks, what do I do? If I go back and supposing Vishnu has found the bottom of this thing and then he will you know, lord it over me and he'll say, I am greater than you. So he decides to lie. And uh, he, um, those who lie, they always get hold of witnesses. So he says, I'll have witnesses to back me up. And he gets hold of the sacred cow. And he tells the sacred cow that uh, you, you tell Vishnu that you were at the top of the this Jyotirlinga, the linga of, of, of fire, of light. And you were sprinkling it with your milk. Because you have to pour milk on the Shivalinga. And then he gets hold of the Ketaki flower. It's a beautiful flower. And tells the flower, you, uh, you give false witness. And you know that you were on top of the Jyotirlinga. Because you put flowers on the uh, Shivalinga. Flowers, leaves, uh, milk and water. So both of them said, alright. You are the boss, Brahma, you know. So they come back. And Vishnu comes back and Brahma says, well, did you find the bottom, did you get to the bottom of this? And Vishnu says, I'm sorry, but I didn't, uh, I couldn't find it, it's bottomless. Um, all these years of traveling and I couldn't get to the bottom of it. But Brahma says, I got to the top of it and here are my witnesses. So if somebody's making a big claim and immediately produces witnesses, you know there's something fishy there. <laughs> here are the witnesses. The, and the cow said, yes, I was at the top of the, um, of the Jyotirlinga. And uh, then the flower also said, yes, I was put on the top of this uh, pillar of fire. And then Shiva, his booming voice comes and says, Oh Brahma, shame on you. Uh, you, are, you are charged with the creation of the worlds and you tell these lies. Um, so from now on, Vishnu will be worshipped uh, as I am worshipped. But nowhere in all the lands will you be worshipped. There's only one temple of Brahma. I think Pushkar is from there. Otherwise, nobody worships Brahma. And then he um, told the sacred cow that fie on you for lying. And so from now on, you will lick dirt with your tongue. So, uh, and the flower, Ketaki, and fie on you for lying. You will never be used for worship. And in fact, that's true. The Ketaki flower is not supposed to be used for worship of Shiva or for, for worship of the gods. I checked. I asked um, uh, Chad GPT. <laughs> 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 
is the flower use ketaki flower used for worship and the first thing it says that don't use it for worship stop <laughs> i'm not in those words and then told told this story with with a twist a different different version of this story uh, different version of this story but anyway so even chat gpt agrees you should not use the ketaki flower for worship in fact this story about being unable even brahma and vishnu being unable to find the limits of shiva uh, pushpadanta mentions it in this uh, hymn he says ha huh. this is the 10th verse in this hymn i'm just skipping ahead to chant that tavaishwaryam yatnat yadupari virinchir hari radha परीक्षेतुता भरगुरुगृणाभ्या गिरीशयत स्वयं तस्थेताभ्या तव किमनुवृत्तिर्न फलती ओ गिरीश ओ शिव ब्रह्म ब्रह्म हु ट्राइड गोइंग हाईअप and vishnu who tried going down below failed to measure thee you had taken the form of a pillar of fire of a uh, of an infinite pillar of fire afterwards when they praised thee with great devotion and faith you reveal yourself to them of thy own accord showing that your worship never goes without result so this is how he has put it anyway the point being uh, he says even brahma and others Uh, even their praise is not adequate because they cannot measure your uh, limits so this is the, uh, the the story is meant to show that um, another beautiful verse here uh, which says that if um, you know your qualities your auspicious qualities are without end and if the goddess of learning saraswati where to write about your qualities and if the whole world where it's you know the scroll on which it, uh, the goddess of learning writes and if the blue mountain where the, the you know powdered into ink and the ocean where the ink pot and the branch of the heavenly tree surataru uh, the tree in the heavens the branch where her pen the quill even then she would not come to the uh, you know it would not be adequate to write all of your qualities a very beautiful verse um swami vivekananda has quoted it once uh, more than once swami turiyananda you find he writes he say he quotes this when he was asked to talk about sri ramakrishna he says uh, he quotes this verse it's a famous verse i'll jump ahead and just chant it because we're not going to get this is almost towards the end of the hymn the 32nd verse where he has almost come finished the hymn and then he says it's not adequate it's nowhere near adequate he says asitagiri samam syat kajjalam sindhu patram surataruvara shakha lekhani patram urvi likhati yadi grihitva sarada sarvakalam tadapi tava gunanamisha param nayati o lord shiva if the blue mountain were powdered into ink you know if the ocean were the ink pot if the branch of the heavenly tree were the quill or the pen and the earth the leaf on which it's written 
and if the goddess of learning saraswati here called sarada if she were the one who was writing for eternity even then the limit of of thy virtues would not be reached so what to speak of my hum- humble effort at praising you it's full of wonderful uh, hymns like that i am reminded of story of the buddha one of his disciples bowed down to him and said master you have surpassed all the great teachers is none equal to you the buddha immediately rebuked him he said why do you speak thus have you known and studied all the teachers of the past the student said no do you know all the great teachers who are there today students the monk said no and do you have any idea of all the great ones who will come in the you know in in the future in the unseen future he said no then why do you speak thus never speak thus um that's why swami vivekananda called buddha the sanest man who ever lived mm-hmm. and he said no cobwebs in that brain <laughs> so it's a, um full of uh, humility and devotion in hinduism the ultimate reality god is understood uh, in at least four different ways um, primarily one is of course the absolute the transcendent absolute nirguna brahman existence consciousness bliss pure being pure awareness pure bliss brahman nirguna brahman the other is the creator of this universe god or like shiva for example so god is the creator of the universe saguna brahman or ishwara the third one is not only creator of, of this universe but immanent in this universe everywhere Swami Vivekananda said we Hindus worship a transcendent immanent god transcendent beyond time space causation beyond maya um, the absolute reality immanent in and through this universe and the, the fourth one would be the avatar so ishwara bhagavan saguna brahman god the theistic god of um, of religion also comes as an incarnation so hinduism is very big on incarnations mostly the incarnations of vishnu fewer incarnations of shiva uh, but incarnation of god basically incarnation of god avatar so four four aspects one the ultimate reality existence consciousness bliss which we talk about in advaita vedanta which is where you can say aham brahmasmi i the individual being um, and the god of this universe are basically one Uh, limitless existence consciousness bliss i am brahman in that sense then the second one is ishwara or bhagavan second third one is um uh, tran- the immanent god in all beings in the in this universe the whole universe is divinized by the presence of god and the fourth one is um the uh, uh, avatar there is a very beautiful verse about rama jo ram dasharath ka beta सो राम जगत पशेरा सोई राम घट घट में लेटा सो राम सबसे न्यारा दैट राम हु इज द सन ऑफ द किंग दशरथ इज अवतार इज इनकारनेशन इज वर्शिप्ड एज रामचंद्र दैट राम इज ऑल्सो द क्रिएटर ऑफ दिस एंटायर यूनिवर्स जगत पशेरा इज द क्रिएटर ऑफ दिस एंटायर यूनिवर्स हाउ how can the one who is born as the son of a king uh, be the creator of the universe but not as as the son of the king in his real nature as 
uh, Vishnu or as a, you know as God, Saguna Brahman Ishvara. That Rama is also present in all his creations. In Ghat Milita, in every object in this universe, the divinity is present. And finally, so Ram Sabsenyara. Uh, and that is, and that Rama also is transcendent beyond everything. Time, space, causation, is pure existence, pure being. So these different aspects are there. We will come across it in the next verse. The second verse by Pushpadanta. Atita panthanam tavacha mahima vangmanasayo atadvyavrityayam chakitam abhidhatte shrutirapi sakasya stotavya katividhaguna kasya vishaya padetvaravachine patati namana kasya navacha Another really beautiful verse. It says, Thy greatness is beyond the reach of mind and speech. Who can praise that which is even the Vedas describe with trepidation by the method of not this, not this, neti neti? How many qualities that does that possess and, how, and can be perceived by whom? Yet to that form taken later, whose mind and speech do not turn? So all these ideas of God are here. One is, the ultimate reality, Brahman, described in the Upanishads only as that, Tat. Uh, he says, Atita Panthanam. It, it is not an object. He says, Wang Manasai, of speech and thought. That ultimate reality, it cannot be seen, heard, smelled, tasted, touched. It's not an object of the senses. Well, at least we can think about it. We can speak about it. No, it's not even an object of language. It's not even an object of thought. I said, Swami, you are talking about it. Something that cannot be talked over, you are talking a lot about it. <laughs> the great philosopher Wittgenstein, he said, um, that which cannot be expressed in language must be passed over in silence. And he says, that is the mystical. He talks about that. Um, no, it cannot be expressed in language. Why not? Adi Shankaracharya, in his commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad, the seventh mantra of the Mandukya Upanishad, um, sort of the climax of the Mandukya Upanishad, there uh, the word is used, abhyapadeshyam, unnameable, you can, un, it cannot be designated by words. And then Shankaracharya explains, why can it not be designated by words? Why cannot the ultimate reality, why can't you talk about it? Why would language fail? Um, he says, in just one phrase, you know, there's a lot of uh, philosophy of language, what language can do and what language cannot do, all of that in one sentence. Uh, he says, Shabda pravritti nimitta rahitattvad. There are certain things which instigate the use of language and those factors are absent in that ultimate reality. So what are the things which instigate the use of language? Um, he gives, you know, th these... Where can we use language? What can language do? You can use language if something belongs to a class, um, you know, jati, a class, a species. So, uh, example he gives, a cow. I mean, that's the typical example you'd get in India, so a cow. <laughs> and the cow is a member of a set, of, of uh, a class, of a species. 
So you can use that word. This is the definition of this set, and this is a member of that set. So you can use the word cow for that. But Brahman, the ultimate reality, is not a member of a set. There is not a whole set of Brahman, and out of that, this is one. No. So it's not a class or set or a species. You can't use a set designator, set in the mathematical sense of a set. So it's not, it's not a member of a set. Second, he says that quality, you, guna, you can use language if something has some attribute. Uh, here is a yellow flower and there's a white flower and there's a green flower. And immediately you know what I'm speaking about. As I point to it, you immediately note them. Why? How did this language work? Yellow flower. Because the flower is yellow, the color yellow is there, I was able to speak about it and you understood what I'm saying. So, flower, member of a species, a class. So you immediately understand, I'm not speaking about the altar, I'm not speaking about the vase, I'm speaking about the flower. And you know what a flower is because it's a part of a class of objects with which you are familiar. Immediately identify it. And when I say yellow flower, it works even better. You know specifically which flower I'm talking about here. So, quality. You can use language if there's a quality, if there's some attribute, characteristic. But Brahman, the ultimate reality, we, are, we say it's nirguna, beyond all attributes. Just now we heard, so Ram, sabse nyara, different from everything else, quite apart, transcendent. No attribute can describe it. No attribute can limit it. Therefore, no quality, nirguna. What else can language do? Well, language can describe action, kriya. Shankaracharya says in that one sentence, he says it can describe action. So, would the person, the driver of the car parked outside the ashram, don't worry, there's no, nothing like that right now, would they, your car is getting towed, would you just go out there and take a look? No, there, there isn't right now. <laughs> uh, now, how, do, how did it work? How did uh, this language work? There is a driver, somebody who fulfills a particular function, uh, an activity, and we understand what that activity is. So, when I use the word driver of that car, um, you see, the word driver can designate an action, a person who's doing that action. Can we do that to Brahman? Yeah, so Brahman is without action, nishkriya. So Swami, didn't you just say Brahman creates this universe? But remember, in Advaita Vedanta, Brahman actually does not create this universe. <laughs> it's like in your dreams, uh, you went to a place and you saw the sky and the earth and people and maybe a restaurant and you're having a cup of uh, tea or coffee. And then afterwards, if I say, you were the, you are the one who made that cup of tea and made that restaurant and all those people. And you say, no, no, I didn't make them. I dreamt it up. They appeared. But I'm not actually, I never actually did any, any of that. Similarly, Brahman, from an Advaitic perspective, the universe actually doesn't exist. It's an appearance in Brahman. Or Brahman itself appears as this universe. So Brahman is not really the creator of this universe. You cannot ascribe any action to Brahman. It doesn't work. Is there any other thing that language can do? Language can express um, a relationship, guru, uh, or father, or mother, some kind of relationship, human, non-human, whatever relationship. But relationship always requires two. In Sanskrit, it's sambandha, relation. The definition is dvinishtha sambandha. A relationship exists in two terms at least. So there must be a second thing apart from that absolute reality for it to have a relationship with something. Even, see, God has a relationship. Creator, created. But the absolute, by the very definition, the moment you say 
The second thing apart from the absolute, then the absolute, you don't understand the definition of the word absolute. There cannot be anything apart from the absolute. Then it is no longer the absolute. It's non-dual. Non-dual literally means no second. If there is no second, what relationship is possible? So relationship also won't work. Language cannot express Brahman because there's no relationship. But there's one last fling that language can take in an attempt to express Brahman. What is that last uh, attempt? It's called designation. Uh, in Sanskrit, rudi, conventional designation. It's a fancy word for saying naming. So when you name a baby, Mary or Sita or Ram or something, how does that work? It has, it has no particular, uh, you know, it's not designating a class, a quality or an action or relationship. It's just a name. From now on, this baby is called, say, Ram or something. Uh, how does it work? You have to point the baby out, point the person out. This person is named such and such thing. Then only the naming will work. If you just say, mm, that person is Ram, you'll ask, which person? Who are you talking about? Point that person out. You say, I can't. Then the naming didn't work. Uh, so you can't say, for example, let's just call it Brahman, Atman, God. The question will be, which one? What are you talking about? I can't point it out. Then it didn't work. Then no, nobody understood what you talked about. So all of these, the five ways in which language functions, jati, class, um, or um, uh, you know, set or species, guna, quality, kriya, action, um, then there is sambandha, relationship, or conventional designation, naming, rudhi. None of them apply to the ultimate reality. And hence, he says, language doesn't work. All of that, he just said it in one word here. Atita panthanam tavacha mahima vangmanasayo. Atita, it transcends language, the use of language. You cannot objectify it with thought. I'm thinking about Atman now. Well, whatever you're thinking about, it's not the Atman. <laughs> it's not Brahman. <laughs> Brahman is however there. It's because of that you're able to think. The Kena Upanishad says, Kena shitam patati preshitam mana, Kena prana prathama prayeti yukta, Kena shitam vacham imam vadanti, Chakshu shrotram kaudeva yunakti. That's how the Kena Upanishad starts. And the, the first thing is a question. What, what an amazing question. It's uh, literally cutting edge now. A question of consciousness. Because of what bright being, of what bright existence, Deva, the shining existence, are we having this experience of thinking, of speaking, of seeing, of hearing? All these first person experiences we are having because of what one thing. See, he's not asking there about the vocal mechanism, how do you speak? Or he's not asking about the visual or auditory mechanism, how do the ears function, the eyes function? No, 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 he's not asking a physiological question. He's not asking a linguistic question or a biological question or medical question, no. Not even asking a question about brain science. He's asking a question about our first person experience, what the neuroscientist Christoph Koch calls the feeling of life itself. This life which we have, the experience which we have, the feeling of life itself, of seeing, hearing, enjoying, suffering, thinking, understanding, remembering, forgetting, uh, all of these experiences. The experience itself is possible because of consciousness. This is the essence of consciousness. And that's why this is you know, a whole hard problem of consciousness and all this is going on right now. It's cutting edge. We say Vedanta is ancient, often described, the ancient spiritual philosophical wisdom of India. But um, 
professor arindam chakravarti said another meaning of vedanta is the cutting edge of knowledge not ancient anta means edge vedanta veda anta so the original meaning is the final last highest teachings of the vedas that is vedanta therefore it's vedanta end of the vedas or the, but he says also the edge of the vedas the re- word the razor's edge is used in the upanishads shurasya dhara to describe of course there is, is to describe the delicate difficult nature of this knowledge but arindam chakravarti the philosopher he says that it also describes the very nature of this knowledge that it is always the cutting edge of knowledge even today in the 21st century and especially true today because we're talking about uh, the um, you know the hard problem of consciousness and all of that um language cannot describe it mind cannot objectify it and again upanishad says it's because of you the consciousness that the mind is able to you get the experience of thinking speaking hearing seeing so what do the upanishads do what does the um, how does it express brahman because if language cannot express it what are the upanishads what are the vedas they are language and if they're trying to express the highest the, the highest reality which cannot be expressed by language what option do they have so pushpadanta here says अतद्व्यावृत्यायम चकितम अभिधत्ते श्रुतिरपि श्रुति उपनिषद्स वेदस उपनिषद्स दे डेजिग्नेट दे टॉक अबाउट द अल्टीमेट रियलिटी ब्राह्मण यू इन व्हिच वे नेति नेति नॉट दिस नॉट दिस नॉट दिस नॉट दिस एंड सेस चकितम स्केयर्ड नर्वसली इवन द हाईएस्ट स्पिरिचुअल टेक्स्ट्स they nervously refer to you you know shakily refer to you as not this not this the only way if you cannot directly refer to the ultimate reality the way you can refer to the ultimate reality is by saying what it is not i can't say what it is but i can show, tell you what it is not how does that work neti neti not this with this what whatever you can designate by this so this thing which i see not what i hear not huh? smell taste touch not that what i can speak about not that whatever i can think about not that if you deny all of that neti not it not that then what you what are you left with the void emptiness so brahman doesn't exist not that <laughs> <laughs> neti neti the second neti refers to that there's a beautiful story a monk told us um that uh, imagine there's this little kid who has never seen a cinema a movie a film and his father takes him to see a movie in a, in a cinema hall so this example worked even when we were kids but now it doesn't work at all because everywhere people have seen movies on their mobile devices or whatever it is anyhow just imagine somebody a kid who hasn't seen it is being taken by the father to the city to see a cinema of a film so they enter the film hall a cinema hall and the movie has started imagine the movie has started so that's the problem right we always when we enter life the movie has already started we never none of us got in at the beginning of the movie <laughs> so we are we are thrown into the middle of the movie so movie has started and the kid is there and he's watching so i always use the example of the mahabharata or ramayana you know um, maybe because the first movie i ever saw was uh, um, i think it was not mahabharata it was ramayana where rama and ravana were fighting and the special effects people would, kids would laugh at it today but those were amazing for us when we were kids 
So after some time, you know, before entering the hall, the father had explained to the kid, you know what a movie is. There's a screen and there'll be light and pictures on that and there's sound and all of that. That's a movie. So after some time, the kid asks the father, Dad, where's the screen? And the father points, there. And the kid goes, imagine it's the battlefield of Kurukshetra and Arjuna and Krishna are standing. And so that, that, that guy with the bow and arrow, so no, 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 behind him, or behind him, the chariot, that's the screen. No, no, behind the chariot. Behind the chariot, you mean the um, battlefield, that's the screen. No, no, behind that, the sky is the screen. No, 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 apart from all of that, Neti, you see, mm -hmm. apart from all of that. By now, I think people around them must be sh shushing them, shh. <laughs> <laughs> apart from all of that, then the, the kid goes, oh, the screen is nothing then. If you take it all away, then there's no screen. Nothing, it's nothing. So no, 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 it is all of that. So he says, oh, you mean the screen is the people with the bows and arrows and the chariots and the elephants and the horses and the battle? No, 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 no. How will the father point out? Because whatever he points out to, there's a picture there. There's a name and a form, an appearance there. So it is true that Brahman is here in every, every being, but you can't point to it directly. You have to negate. So this is the word used, atadvyavritya, which means the method of neti neti, not this, not this. You have to deny that this is not Brahman. It's not that the ultimate reality is a table or a chair or a person or space or time, none of this. Then the immediate mistake will be, so that ultimate reality doesn't exist. And you have to say, not that either. <laughs> Another way the Kena Upanishad does it is, it's different from whatever you know. Whatever anybody knows, that ultimate reality is different from it. Oh, so it's unknown. No, it's different from that too. Anya devatadvidita adato avidita adati. It is other than the known. Oh, so it's unknown. No, it's higher than the unknown, beyond the unknown. So what's the one thing which is not known and yet not unknown also? What's one thing? You know it, <laughs> within quotes. Yes, you, correct. One brave soul owned up. I am that. <laughs> yes. You are that. Think about it. Even without all fancy philosophy. What is it that we know about ourselves? Whatever we know about ourselves can be designated as this. This body. This mind. This life. This resume. <laughs> this, this, this. This narrative. These memories. And if you deny that, then nothing. No, not even that. So that which is the real you, you the consciousness, can never be designated as this. In fact, everything is designated as this to it. it to, it to it appears this entire universe designated as this. So he says, this is how the Upanishads, scared, nervously, refer to that ultimate reality. Or there is another way. Not the ultimate reality, but as the god of this universe. You are the creator, preserver, destroyer of this universe. Full of endless qualities. Even then it's difficult to refer to you because your qualities are endless. As we just said, the goddess of learning also cannot exhaust your qualities by writing about them. Um, then, finally, the third form. So what I'm talking about are the different ways in which God is understood. So next he says, Pade tu arvachine patati namana kasyanavacha. The later forms that you assume, 
for the sake of devotees those attract our mind and speech what is the later form which one incarnations also uh, ishwar in the form in which shiva vishnu devi you know so there is a form in which you can visualize and there is a story associated with all these stories there is a name shiva maheshwara mahadeva so there is he says the form that you assume later for the sake of the devotees what is that form on mount kailasha you are sitting there dressed as a yogi with flowing matted locks and the moon on your forehead and the ganga flowing down your uh, lock, locks of hair and uh, your blue in hue seated in meditation with a third eye with a snake coiled around your uh, neck we are wearing a cloth of the tiger skin things like that all the descriptions of shiva he says when you have this description then all of our minds and speech are attracted that which is beyond mind and speech because it's not an object that's the ultimate reality next that which is so infinite in uh, in auspicious qualities ishwara bhagwan the creator of this universe the one god of all religions and that is so infinite it you no praise can ever exhaust that can talk about it but now you have a further step down uh, that god can assume multiple forms this is where hinduism comes to its fore that we are really great at that endless forms and names so you have just have to go to a hindu temple and see what are those forms and names he talks about it the arvachina means later they are very conscious that it's a later projection it's not the ultimate reality but it has a very great advantage what is the advantage first of all it retains the divinity of that ultimate reality second you can now talk about it praise it visualize it worship it all of the rituals um, you know hymns like this all of it now becomes effective so that is the special technology in hinduism where the names and forms divine names and forms are there see in the names and forms in this universe what happens like the names and forms on the movie screen they prevent the child from seeing or understanding what the movie screen is because the attention is always drawn to those names and forms so similarly in samsara there is only one brahman everywhere so ram ghat ghat mein leta that same rama is everywhere in every object however we don't see it why don't we see it our attention is diverted and confused by the presence of the names and forms the objects but now suppose you have a name and a form object and yet so it's divine it's satvik it doesn't veil the divinity behind so you can focus on an uh, form image of rama of krishna of shiva of devi of vishnu and that reveals the divinity behind it satchidananda so that is the technology of you know names forms image worship so basically what he says is those names and forms projected afterwards whose mind does not go there whose speech does not go there so that's why i am also composing this hymn he's still making a case for why he should compose the hymn then the next we are only on the third mantra <laughs> all right we'll just do that madhuspita vacha paramamritam nirmitavata tava brahman kingvag api sura gurur vismaya padam 
ममेताणी गुणकथनपुण्यनमीतमथन बुद्धिव्यवसिता so he says o brahman o shiva even the praise of brahman of brahma uh, it it falls short of thee who is the author of the nectar like vedas so here another thing in hinduism god not only creates the universe that's secondary god's great glory is that god gives the vedas <laughs> god is the source of the vedas the vedas are even more important than the universe So in Vivekananda says the Vedas are so holy to the Hindu that if he loses his cow he goes to search for the cow in the Vedas because everything is in the Vedas you know <laughs> so <laughs> he actually says this in, in complete works in a talk here he says when the Hindu loses his cow he goes to search for it in the Vedas because everything is in the Vedas so here do you see that uh, Pushpadanta praises says you are the creator not literally the creator there are different theories on this the vedas are eternal coexisting with ishvara and from cycle to cycle when the universe is created each time god gives out the vedas the vedas are the storehouse of spiritual knowledge which are you find in the four vedas of the hindu religion but also vivekananda says wherever there is spirituality in every religion you will find the this core spiritual truths which come from god so those are the vedas you I have given out this nectar like vedas so even the greatest of praise is you know small compared to what you have done um then why am i praising you he says my speech this hymn which i am composing he hasn't started yet he's just making a case for it which i am composing it it will purify my speech i am the beneficiary by composing this it's not that i have really glorified you by uh composing this hymn so this is the humility i've seen many you know, great advaitic texts sureshwar acharya the most learned of shankaracharya's disciples when he writes his masterpiece the naishkarmya siddhi non dual vedanta teaching what shankaracharya has taught and then he says at the beginning why am i writing this i, I can't hope to improve upon what shankaracharya has done but it's only to clarify my understanding that's that's why i'm writing so that's how the great masters used to you know give for these great spiritual works philosophical works but with great humility punami ityathesmin i am purifying my speech puramathana that's why i am uh, composing this particular hymn puramathana is do we have time for one yeah we have time for one more story it's a nice story so i'll just tell that story um So here, Puramathana means the one who destroyed the three cities. There's a story of the Tripura Asura, the demon who dwelt in the three cities. Actually, there were three demons, but I won't go into that. That's a long story again. <laughs> so, uh, at one time, this Tripura Asura, these demons or three demons, they asked Brahma for a boon, and uh, Brahma, and they said, "Let us be immortal." And Brahma said, "I can't give you that." And then they said all right in that case construct three invulnerable cities for us where we will stay uh, one uh, on earth made of iron one uh, in the skies made of silver and one in deep space made of gold the three cities and we will stay there and nobody can destroy us and um, it's only uh, when all the three cities are together and that will happen once uh, for an instant in thousands of years at that moment 
only it it, uh, it can be destroyed and that too with if somebody can destroy all the cities with one arrow uh, then it can be destroyed something like that some very difficult conditions which means basically we'll be immortal nothing can be done to us and brahma said all right you see this motive again and again in uh, mythology in hindu mythology so the this is how the three cities came to being and the demons lived there uh, one city on earth made of iron one city in the skies made of silver one city in the uh, in space made of gold again very symbolic i'll tell you what it means actually now the demons became incorrigible created havoc on the different worlds and any any time the gods or the humans start tried to capture them they would re- retreat into their invulnerable cities and nobody could do anything to them and they captured so many uh, you know sentient beings and imprisoned them in these terrible cities finally the gods prayed to shiva do something about these demons so shiva is a very dramatic description in fact pushpadant in this verse itself he gives a description of how shiva went and destroyed the cities and the gods gave all their weapons and equipment to shiva and uh, shiva goes up into the sky and you know there's this silver city does it remind you of a balloon floating in the sky somewhere <laughs> <laughs> and he shoots one arrow at it and the and the cities which had that moment they had uh, coincided you know they had, they came in in uh, in one line the three three of them were shot down you know, recently <laughs> the third one over canada yesterday so uh, all the cities were destroyed in an instant so shiva is also given the name puramathana uh, or tripurahara the one who destroyed the three cities um, there is i'll get, tell you the actual meaning but there's a very beautiful verse here which describes a dramatic verse which describes yes the 18th verse pushpadanta talks about this story i'll chant it and then translate it for you it's the destruction of the three cities रथक्षोणीयतृतिरगेन्द्रो धनुरथो रथांगे चंद्रार्को रथचरणपाणीशर दिधक्षोस्ते कोयंत्रिपुरतृणमाडंबरविधि विधेयक्रीडंत्यो न खलु परतंत्रप्रबुधिया when you wanted to thou you uh, you wanted to burn the three cities which were like a piece of straw to you your chariot earth the the earth itself became your chariot brahma became your charioteer the great mountain meru was your bow the your, your bow the sun and the moon were the wheels of your chariot wow, how dramatic you know <laughs> the sun and the moon were the wheels of your chariot your arrow was none other than vishnu vishnu was the arrow and yet why all this paraphernalia why all this equipment you know so equipped with f22s and the missiles and it says you the lord you are not dependent on anything you are playing with these things it is it's it's your play it's your leela you could destroy the three cities if you wanted they exist at your whim and they're destroyed at your whim but it's part of your divine play all this drama of the of the planet earth being your chariot and the sun and the moon being the wheels of the chariot and brahmard you know uh, driving this cosmic chariot and the meru being your bow and the vishnu being the arrow and so and so forth and the three cities were pierced and destroyed 
and all beings were liberated. That's the story. Um, there is a Tamil version of the story, which I just read in English translation, which goes, takes this a little further. It says, you do not depend upon any of these. Actually, do you know how the cities were destroyed? When in the, you know, in the middle of this tremendous tumult, of this cosmic battle going on, you smiled, you were amused, and the cities burnt, were <laughs> reduced to ashes. You destroyed the three cities with a smile. This, it's actually a Tamil verse. What does this mean? Is there any deeper meaning? It's a nice story. I'm, I can, I'm sure Hollywood can take it up as like a science fiction <laughs> space battle or whatnot. Uh, but there's, a, of course, a very deep meaning to it. The meaning is that the three bodies, the physical body and the subtle body and the causal body. The physical body is this. This is the iron city, the city in, on Earth, where in the gross physical body. And the sentient being, we are trapped, imprisoned here. Our real nature is Shiva, but we are imprisoned here. We don't. We don't. We are stuck in this life. And there is an even worse city, the silver thing, not the balloon. The silver thing in the sky, the silver city, is a subtle body, thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, our inner personality, closer to us than our physical body. Also, it doesn't matter so much what the body is as as what our inner personality is, our thoughts, feelings, our own little story, and we are trapped there also. We are trapped even more so by that. Even that's not you. That's also a prison. That's also a city in the sky. And there is a seed state in the darkness of outer space. There is a golden city, which is the seed, the causal state, which we experience in deep sleep. In waking, we are on the city on earth, the iron city. In dreams, we are in the city in the sky, the silver city. And in deep sleep, the darkness of outer space, it's the golden city. It's the seed of our entire limited personality. Shiva, who is the fourth, not the waker, not the dreamer, not the deep sleeper, the fourth, Turiya, the consciousness. From that perspective, he shoots the arrow of knowledge, which pierces all three cities and showing us, liberating the sentient being trapped in these cities, showing us your real nature is pure consciousness, Shiva. So this is the meaning. Uh, uh, you know, amazing these stories this is what Vivekananda means when he says let these stories sweep through you like water and when the waters have receded they will leave a nugget of truth inside you which is most valuable I'll end with a verse again from this uh, hymn which is the last verse chanted in all the worship of Shiva when Shiva is worshipped Shivaratri in all Shiva worship at the end this verse is uh, chanted um, oh, before that, what was the verse that Vivekananda chanted in the World Parliament Religions? Yes, I, I didn't get to it actually, but uh, here is a very famous verse from this. Uh, you can see the, where Sri Ramakrishna, his harmony of religions, everything is coming from, is from the seventh verse here. It's one of the most famous verses. The verse goes, Trai Sankhya Yoga Pashupati Matam Vaishnavamiti Prabhinne Prasthani Paramidamada Patyamiti Cha Ruchi Nam Vaichitriyat Rijukutila Nana Pathajusham Nrinami Kogamya Swamasi Payasamar Navaiva there are all these different paths. There's the path of the Vedas, Trai, uh, Riksama Yajur, the Vedic path. 
There is the path of the Sankhya, which talks about consciousness and matter, Purusha Prakriti. There is the path of Yoga, Patanjali Yoga, the path of Samadhi, Yoga, Chitta, Vritti, Nirodha. There is the Pashupata path, the path of uh, worship of Shiva, where we Shiva is the ultimate reality and we are all um, Pashu, that means animals, we are bound by Maya. Pasha means Maya, the rope. And the master of that rope is Shiva, Pashupati. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, Pash Badhujib, Pash Muktoshib. The same entity tied in the ropes is Pashu, the animal, Jiva. And tied and released from the bondage is Shiva. You are Shiva. In knowledge, in ignorance, tied in, in this samsara, you are Jiva. You can see the same story of the three cities and all. So Pashupati, he says, even, even that, even this teaching, Vaishnavam, the Vaishnava doctrine of Vishnu is God and, and all of Rama, Krishna, all of that comes from the Vaishnava um, teaching, Vaishnava flavor of Hinduism. Prabhinne prasthane, different paths. Paramidam patyam, and they quarrel among each other. Mine is better, patyam, this is better, come to this path, come here, come here. You can stand in the subway and hand out uh, brochures. <laughs> Come here, this is better. But Pushpadanta says, Ruchi nam vaichitriyat, because of difference in our mental constitution and taste. If they are all true, why not why just one? Because we are not one. We are various. We have various mental constitutions. Some are devotional by nature. Some are philosophical by nature. Some are meditative. Some are action-oriented. Most of us are a mix of these things. Most of you know, we have multiple cultural backgrounds. So there is something or the other which will work for you. Once Swami Vivekananda, this is the key to Swami Vivekananda's apparent contradictoriness. Many people say you contradict yourself. You say so many different things. Um, once after one of his talks, somebody came to him and said, um, I really liked what you said. And Vivekananda said, it's for you. And somebody else nearby piped up and said, I didn't think it was all that great. And Vivekananda said, then it's not for you. <laughs> this is the, this idea Ruchi nam Chitriyat. We are not all the same There are the, We are trapped in different ways And different techniques And different methods Different approaches will free us Different stories will free us Different stories suit us The truth will It will point out the same truth within us But since we are trapped in different ways The methods of freeing us Also must be a little different so ruchi nam vaichitriyat, because of different in, difference in constitution and taste, ruchi, taste. Riju kutila nana patajusham, all these wonderful, beloved, most praised paths. Some are straight, some are long and winding. But what happens? Rinam eko gamya, you are the one ultimate goal of all beings, of all sentient beings. You that ultimate reality. And notice, he's being pretty non-sectarian here. He's worshipping Shiva. But he's already included the path of Shiva in one of the many paths. Just like, then he gives a beautiful example. Payasam Arnavaiva. Just as all the rivers flow into the ocean. Similarly, all these paths flow into thee. So these are different. Paths are different. They take different courses. They're different. Each of them has its... And he says... But the Jusham, they are, they are all beloved, they are all uh, noble, they are all wonderful paths. And they are all different from each other, they are all unique. And that's the economy of God in which all these paths are there. These last two lines, as all rivers flow into the ocean, um, O Lord, all, all men worship you in different ways. 
this Vivekananda quoted in the World Parliament of Religions in the first speech itself. So the final verse, I'll chant and end. This is how the puja of Shiva, the worship of Shiva ends. Um, where is this verse? Tavatatvam najanami kidrishosi maheshwara yadrishosi mahadeva tadrishaya namo namaha At the very end of this hymn, Pushpadanta says, Truly speaking, I do not know your reality. What you are and what you are like, I do not know. I do not understand. Who knows? Whatever you are like, O great God, Mahadeva, my salutations to you. So, Yadrishosi, as you are, whatever you are, you only know what you are, O Mahadeva. Tadrishaya namo namo. In that form known only to you, in that reality, my salutations again and again to you. I pray to Lord Shiva, Mahadeva, the beloved of Pushpadanta, Sri Ramakrishna, Masharada, Swami Vivekananda to bless us all with devotion, knowledge and enlightenment. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu